Good morning, church. It's great to see you as we continue through uh, the Gospel of Luke and our series through this book. Uh, Our family has, uh, this year, one of our goals was to start practicing the Sabbath. Uh, so we, we've started practicing this year really in earnest. It's something we've, we've always wanted to do. We've, we've known it would be a good thing to do for a long time, but we've never been able to figure it out, and we just finally decided it's a non-negotiable, we're going to do it. And so we, we've been uh, practicing the traditional Jewish Sabbath of Friday evening, Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, and the kids love it. You know, the, the, the kids, we have five young kids, and they're, they're all in. You know, we light the candle, and, you know, it's really fun. They love it. And we're teaching them that uh, the Sabbath is a good gift from God. It's, it's a, a day uh, for rest, play, no work, God loves us, right? That's the mantra. Rest, pray, play, no work, God loves us. Um, and we're certainly still beginners at this. Uh, we're still working out the, the kinks every week, but it's been great so far. We've really enjoyed it. And in our text today, uh, the controversy is about the Sabbath. This is about the Sabbath day. Um, And so we're going to kind of follow four questions as we walk through this text together. First is, what is the Sabbath? What is it? Two, uh, what is the Pharisees' problem with Jesus? Three, how does Jesus respond to them, to their accusation? And then four, what did the Pharisees miss? So we'll walk through these as we, as we follow our text. Let's pray once more, and we'll dive in. Father, oh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for, uh, for bringing us here this morning, allowing us to be together as a church family, allowing us to worship you and praise you as we've already done. Um, Lord, I, I just ask that you would continue to meet with us here, that you would encourage us, that you would help us, that you would speak to us. Um, Lord, as uh, as we, as we are all here, and we're all in different places, and uh, I don't know every person here. I don't know their stories. I don't know what they need. Uh, Lord, would you just speak to us, and would we be open? Would each of us, Lord, be open to hearing from you, hearing what you would have to say? Um, so please help us, and uh, we need you. In Jesus' powerful name, I ask these things. Amen. All right, first, what is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? Uh, well, the Sabbath is uh, its one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's the Fourth Commandment. Uh, And it's rooted in creation itself. Okay, so this is Exodus 20. Uh, This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days, And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So God himself rested on the seventh day. He rested from creation. Um, This was, you know, not because he was tired and he needed a break. Uh, It it was in order to to create the Sabbath day, in order to bless a day each week and, and make it holy. Set apart a day as different from the other days of the week. He ordained this in the same way for his people. To, to work six days and then to set aside one for rest and for worship. It was a gift to his people. The Sabbath was an important part of Jewish life and, and played an integral part in their history and their identity as a nation. Um, for instance, when they were wandering for 40 years in the desert after God brought them out of Egypt, when, when he, he's forming them into uh, his people, when, uh, when uh, you know, Moses, this is when he receives the Ten Commandments and the law. 
Um, he feeds them, right? You remember they grumble, they're, they're upset. Why can't we just go back to Egypt? There was at least food there. And so God gives them quail, right? And gives them manna from heaven, this bread that would just show up in the morning with the dew. Um, and, and what they found was uh, they, they would, if they tried to gather more than they needed um, on, on six of the days, right? If they tried to gather some for tomorrow, it would rot. It would get maggots in it uh, by the next day. So they, they, they just had to gather enough for one day. But then on the sixth day, God said, gather twice as much um, because the seventh day is, is your Sabbath. It's a day of rest. You can't gather on that day. Um, and so th- this is, this is uh, from Exodus 16. This describes this. They gathered it every morning, the manna. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, which I love. God was measuring food at that point. Four quarts apiece. And all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded. And it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments or my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. God provided for his people, Israel, in this way for 40 years, right? 40 years every week as they, as they wandered in the desert before he brought them into the promised land. And that puts an indelible mark on a community, right? They, they were marked by this practice of the Sabbath. It's made them distinct among the nations. And they knew God was serious about the Sabbath. Okay, second question. What, what is the Pharisees' problem here in our text with Jesus? The tension's been rising in Luke. Uh, the narrative is, is showing this building tension between the religious elites and Jesus. So a few chapters ago, Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, and there wasn't any problem, right? Because there were no religious elites there. The Pharisees weren't there. Um, but slowly, he's been gaining more and more attention, more notor- notoriety, and now it's, you know, it's at its height. Um, and, and so he's, he's, we, we see them here. They're watching. They're scrutinizing Jesus and his disciples. They're almost stalking them. I mean, it's like this is a sort of funny thing to even notice, I think. That they're, they're walking through the field, grabbing grain, rubbing it in their hands, you know, to get the, the husk off and, and then eating it. And I, I, I mean, how do, I just imagine the Pharisees rising up out of the grain field. Why are you snacking on the Sabbath? You know, <laughs> like where were they even? Were they like in the woods? How, how do they even watch them do this? Um, like counter question, why are you spying on the Sabbath? Does that not work? I don't know. Um, Anyway, what's, what's their problem, right? What's their problem with, with Jesus? They're, they're concerned that the disciples are breaking the Sabbath, right? Harvesting was work. In an agrarian society, of course, harvesting is work. Definitely a prohibited, uh, you know, activity on the Sabbath day. And so the Pharisees here are accusing the disciples of harvesting, and probably not only harvesting, but also uh, threshing, you know? They're processing that grain before they eat it. So they're harvesting and processing grain, Sabbath violation. What are you guys, why, why are you doing what's not lawful? Right, these guys just must have been a joy to be around. You know? And by the way, 
the Pharisaical spirit has not left the church. If you find yourself trying to catch people doing things that might possibly be sinful, then you might be a Pharisee. If you find yourself condemning people in your heart or with your words for technical violations of God's word, you might be a Pharisee. If you think discernment is your spiritual gift uh, in, the, in the form of reading someone's words in the worst possible light in order to catch them in a controversy, you might be a Pharisee. If you judge others, if you're a critical person, if you're, if you're always right, you can always see it and they never can, you might be a Pharisee. If you're more concerned with doctrinal purity than with treating people with kindness, you might be a Pharisee. Don't we all have some Pharisaical tendencies in our hearts? It's still a danger today. In fact, if you're thinking of another person right now who really needs to hear this, you might be a Pharisee. Right? And I, and I would just beg you to apply this to yourself. I need to apply it to myself. How are you judging others so that you can lift yourself up and feel righteous in your own eyes? You might think, man, Lawson, it seems like you have some inside information into the, the, the inner life of a Pharisee. And, and I would say that may or may not be because I'm a member of an organization you may have heard of, Pharisees Anonymous. <laughs> Hi, my name is Lawson, and I'm a Pharisee. Right? And I'll share with you a story from a couple years ago, because I don't want to be that vulnerable with you. Uh, but uh, I, a couple years ago, when I, was, uh, when I, only, had, uh, when I only had three kids, uh, I remember that because it was an important part of the story, I, I was sitting at, at Jason's Deli eating dinner with my family. And I, we were just sitting there enjoying our, our meal. Um, and I just remember noticing at a booth across the way, another, uh, another family, a dad, who had two kids. So he had two kids. We had our three kids there. Um, and, and I just remember, and, and this sounds so silly, like I get embarrassed <laughs> even saying this, but for some reason, I just, I just thought, man, he has two kids and I have three, so I'm, I'm better than him. <laughs> right? I mean, that, like, what? Like, that's the, there's a million ways that that is so, so, so silly and so evil, right? But that is the pharisaical impulse, isn't it? To be self-righteous and to treat others with contempt for no reason at all, for any reason or no reason, right? Put others in their place so I can feel good about myself. That's what the Pharisees are trying to do, trying to put Jesus and his disciples in their, in their, in their place. They want to lift themselves up. And we still struggle with this today. How does Jesus respond to their accusation? Well, he says, haven't you read? Which is the best way to answer a Pharisee with the Bible. Like, haven't you read the Bible? Like, yes, I've read the Bible. Uh, the best way to answer, this is, this is the best way to answer them. And he, and he quotes this Bible that they don't understand or live by, <laughs> clearly. Um, Jesus refers to them, uh, refers them to a story from 1 Samuel 21. David is in the story. He's fleeing from Saul. Uh, and he and his men are hungry. They're hungry. They go to the temple to ask for food. And all they have is the bread of the presence, the ceremonial bread that would be baked and put, uh, put in the temple. And then after the, a lot of time, the, it would go to the priest and the priest would eat it. They were, only, they were the only ones who allowed, were allowed to eat it. 
Uh, but the priest at that time gives David the bread, right? Gives David and his men the bread. And David shares it between him and his, his men. Nowhere is this act condemned as sinful, even though it's technically against the law, right? It's technically against the, the letter of the law. So what is Jesus saying in, in making this comparison? It's not a perfect parallel, right? David, as far as we know, this wasn't on the Sabbath day that David took this bread, so it wasn't a Sabbath violation. Um, Jesus and his disciples aren't fleeing from, you know, for their lives like David and his men are. So why, what's the parallel? Why is he bringing this example up? I think the comparison he's making shows the Pharisees have missed the point of the Sabbath. They've missed the point of the Sabbath. Matthew and Mark record the same interaction, um, fleshed out with, with some further teaching. In Mark 2.27, the same spot, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Matthew records the interaction like this, Matthew 12.3. He said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So David and his men were in need. And so it wasn't wrong for him to take the bread that was only for the priests. The priests, he says, work on the Sabbath. They're they're doing the temple work. They're sacrificing animals. They're running the worship. Are they working? Is that wrong? No, that's not wrong. They're doing good. They're serving God. They're, they're loving others, serving people. If you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, Jesus says. Human need, doing good to people, trumps callous letter of the law obedience. Right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath, which by the way, they're not breaking. Jesus says he wouldn't have condemned the innocent. The disciples are not harvesting. (laughs) They're snacking, right? Uh, But the point of the Sabbath is it's a day of rest and worship, a day for refreshing the soul before God, glorifying him. It's a day to do good. It's a gift from God. It's It's not a yoke to burden his people. It's a gracious gift. But they they don't get it. And so Jesus decides to illustrate it to them in in real time, in real life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all connect these two stories. They're they're one after another in in all three of the synoptic gospels. Another Sabbath, it says, he's in the temple. They're again there to trap him, right, to accuse him. They're going to see if he will heal. They're trying to to get him doing that. He knows this. He He takes him head on. There's a man there with a withered hand, a shriveled hand, it says, Right, his hand doesn't work, the ligaments, the tendons, it, it, it's uh, you know, deformed, it doesn't work. And it wouldn't surprise me if maybe the Pharisees planted him there. Right? They're trying to trap Jesus. Now, hey, John, you, want, you should come to temple you know, this morning, just make sure you're there. They're actively trying to find ways to accuse him. And so Jesus has the man stand up, stand up in front of everyone. And then he addresses who? Not the man, the Pharisees directly. I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? 
What a great way to frame the question. He, he doesn't say, as a Pharisee might, man, what's lawful and unlawful on the Sabbath? They could have answered that. They, could, they would have given him the approved list. They had it. Instead, he says, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath, to save or to destroy? And of course, the answer is, God wants you to do good. He wants you to save. If Jesus has the ability to heal someone on the Sabbath, to make someone whole, to give them rest, to do good to them, should he choose to do it or not to do it? And they have no answer. They're silent. He tells the man to stretch out his hand, and as the man does, he's restored to health. (laughs) I love this so much. It's no work at all for Jesus to heal this man. It's a breeze. Stretch out your hand. Like, what are they going to say? Hey, no talking or stretching out of your hand on Sabbath days. (laughs) Like, it's not work. Simply by a word from Jesus, this man's hand is restored to wholeness. And the Pharisees are livid, filled with rage, it says. That's the same word that in, back in chapter 4 that uh, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, whenever they, they're filled with rage and are going to throw him off the cliff, try to kill him, it's the same word. Matthew and Mark both say explicitly what Luke here implies at the end. They begin plotting now how they can kill him. This is the, this is the last straw. He's got to die. He's got to go. And of course, he will die. He will go to the cross. Why? Why are they so upset? Why does this drive them to want to literally kill Jesus? I think two things. First, Jesus' explicit claims. Right? The Son of Man, he says, is Lord of the Sabbath. And he's asserting this, and then he's exhibiting, he's showing this. Right? He, he's saying, at the end of the day, he doesn't just say, we're not really breaking the Sabbath. No, you don't have to worry about that. No, no. I mean, he does say that, but he also says, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. At the end of the day, I can decide what is or isn't in violation of the Sabbath since I created the Sabbath. I'm the Lord over it. And then he proves it. He shows it by his power. But look, how, how am I working with God's power? How am I healing someone on the Sabbath if, if I'm working against God and I'm a Sabbath breaker? He's making explicit claims and proving them very, uh, very clearly. Second, second reason why I think this drives them to want to kill Jesus is he's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their control, to their order. What, what is that? What is that order? It's that they are the righteous ones. They're the ones who are close to God. They're the ones who follow the rules. They're the really good ones. And that makes them, of course, superior to all the riffraff, to the tax collectors and lepers and women and Gentiles and sick and poor and disabled people. And then Jesus comes along, and and what does he do? He claims to be from God, and more than that. And then he, he? he eats with tax collectors. He touches lepers. He dignifies women. He welcomes Gentiles. He heals the sick. He preaches good news to the poor. He restores the disabled. 
He challenges the Pharisees' authority. He challenges their order, right? And, and, and he contradicts them. He forgives sin. He calls himself the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath, and they are enraged. And Jesus is still a threat to Pharisaical order and control all over the world. Why? Because to every person, Jesus says the same thing. Jesus says the same thing to every person. Right? You are a sinner, a rebel against God. All you deserve is God's wrath and punishment. Do you see how that puts everyone in the same boat? Like if you're thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much better than everyone, and then all of a sudden someone comes on, no, you're with everybody, right? It just, it cuts everyone down to the same size. Whatever you think it is that makes you better than others, your views on certain social topics, the way you live, your status or reputation, your skills or experience or obedience, um, your, your money, your power, your piety, your abilities, it's all leg-whipped by Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You realize, oh no, I'm needy. I'm helpless. I'm doomed. The gospel is a threatening truth, it's a threat. Don't underestimate how painful and terrifying it is for people to realize and admit their true state before a holy God. And then Jesus says, again, to everyone, come to me, admit your need, and I'll save you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise. Jesus died and rose so that whoever trusts in him will be saved, will be brought in. The Pharisees thought that the, the ones who did good were closest to God. And Jesus, he, he knocks that down. He says, no, 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 it's not the ones who do good who are close to God. It's the ones who know they aren't good. They're the closest. They're coming to God. These are the ones who eat with Jesus and, 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 and want love to be around him, right? Who is it? It's the lowly. It's those who know they need help. If this gospel is true, then it's a threat to all self-righteousness everywhere. No one can boast before God. No one has a leg up. And can I just say, Christian Pharisees are the worst. Right? We're the worst. Why? Because we who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can quote, we, we know the Sunday school songs, we can quote the verses. Right? Then, because of our piety, our right doctrine, our lives, our families, all of which, by the way, we acknowledge is a gift of grace, we don't deserve it, then we lift ourselves up and because of those things look down and judge others because they don't measure up to our standard. The hypocrisy is just mind-bending. And yet it's in our hearts. 
And this is heartbreaking because of what we will miss if we are Pharisees. What we will miss. What did the Pharisees miss? And what will we miss if we have Pharisaical hearts? Two things. Two things, I think. First, they missed Jesus. They missed Jesus, the the Messiah, the Son of God, the the promised King, the one they were waiting for. They were watching him preach. They were watching him do miracles. The man's hand was healed, right? They saw him. They were there in front of him, and they missed it. They rejected him. They couldn't see. And we, too, might miss Jesus. Jesus. It's possible to be so focused on performance, on my reputation, on controlling my life, on on my rules and the important things to do, that that you can miss the whole point of it all, which is Jesus himself. Think of of Paul, the founder of Pharisees Anonymous. Right, he was the first one. What did he say in Philippians 3? Right? He brags about his credentials. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law, blameless. Right? I had everything in order. And then he says, but everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I just want to know him. I don't care about any of that stuff. That's what Paul says. The, the, the telos, the end, the goal, the purpose of life is to know Jesus. What else is there? Do you know it's possible to go to church and to be a genuinely nice person? Like to be a good person and to miss Jesus. You know, it's possible to do good ministry and miss Jesus. You know, it's possible to preach powerful sermons and miss Jesus. What what does Jesus say at the end? They come to the end. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he doesn't say, no, you didn't do any of that. No, he doesn't. He says, yeah, you did, but I'm sorry. I, I never knew you. Jesus is the point. He's the goal. And here's how this looks, I think. Here's a a symptom of of a pharisaical heart. There's no joy. There's no joy. There's no heart. You're wound up so tight inside, so hard, so cold, that all your religious performance is just that. It's performance. Don't sing out of an overflow of your heart. You just sing because everyone else is. That's what you're supposed to do. You've always done it. There's no song in your heart. Though you believe, you believe this as an abstract theological concept, you don't ever experience God's love for you. Like you don't know how it feels to be loved by the Father. That though you would say that you love God and that you, and you know you're supposed to and you can quote a verse about it, you, you don't really know what it would feel like to love God, like you love your family or like you love other people. Pharisees 
miss Jesus. They miss life himself. That's the first thing. Second, what do they miss? The Pharisees in the story, what else did they miss? They missed the hurting man in front of them. This is a, this is a baffling response, isn't it? They, they literally watch a man with a shriveled hand, like a disabled man, reach out and is made whole. And all they can think is, we got to kill the guy who did that. They're, they're so callous. They're so blind. They're so hard-hearted. Jesus was interested in mercy, grace, helping this guy. And the Pharisees were certainly not. They, they, were, they, they were glad to use him to make a point, but they didn't care about him. And Jesus is still interested in mercy and grace and helping people. He's still interested. He's interested in helping the Venezuelan refugees down at Team every Tuesday. He's interested in helping the young men and women who come into the pregnancy center in Tomball who are scared and desperate. He's interested in helping those in prison, the homeless man walking on 249, the depressed coworker at your office, the Muslim student in your class, all the lost and broken people around you every day. The Pharisees are totally callous. They're totally hard-hearted to the need of this man. And are we the same? Do we have compassion for the people around us? Are we interested in helping the people who Jesus wants to help? Of course, this is the other part of our purpose, right? To know Jesus and what? To make him known. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's first. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets. And the Pharisees forsake both despite having great theology and great zeal. They don't love God. They don't love the hurting around them. And brothers and sisters, may this never be. Lord, save us. What, what is Jesus' response to us? A Pharisee's response would be shame, by the way. Shame on you for your Phariseeism, right? That's not Jesus's, though. What is his? Well, when the man with the withered hand is standing up in front of the crowd, what does Jesus say? Mark gives us a little more information in his narrative. This is Mark uh, 3, verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus' question here, I don't think was a, a gotcha question. Right, this question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I don't, I, he wasn't just trying to get a good sound bite dunking on his opponents. No, what, what was he doing with this question? I think he's inviting them in. He's inviting them in. He, he, he's silent. He gives them the chance to, to respond, a chance to change their mind. He, he's asking them this stark question, right? Is it, 
is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty stark question. That's a pretty easy question to answer, probably. And he's trying to wake them up. He's trying to, to shake them out of their, their mindset and go, hey, you can change. And he's giving them a chance to say, Jesus, you should do good on the Sabbath. Of course you should do good on the Sabbath. I'm sorry we're trying to trap you. Please help us understand what we're missing something. But they don't say that. They were silent. And he was grieved, it says, at their hardness of heart. And Jesus' invitation to you, whether you're a non-Christian Pharisee, whether you're self-righteous in your unbelief, or whether you're a Christian Pharisee, you're self-righteous in your belief, is the same. He invites you in. His grace is that wide. To repent of your self-righteousness and to trust him. He, he won't hold it against you. Even this. He won't shame you. Isn't it amazing? He doesn't wag his finger. Right? No, he came and what, he died and rose from the dead to deal with our sin and our guilt and our shame. He came for the sick. That's what he says. I came for the sick, not the healthy. Won't you just admit you're sick? He, he bring, brings the new wine of the kingdom. Like, won't you let go of your old way? Won't you let go of your pride and come to him and enjoy his grace? It takes letting go of your pride. And the Pharisees aren't willing to do that. Hebrews 4 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, uh, is a, uh, the, a lot of the chapters about the Sabbath. You should go read it this afternoon. It's a great chapter. Um, we, we aren't, I, I don't believe, commanded to keep the Sabbath in the same way as the Jews were, though I, I do think it's a wise spiritual practice. I think it's a good spiritual discipline, especially in our day. Um, but we who believe, Hebrews says, enter his rest. We enter into his Sabbath in that we cease from our work as he did from his. Um, the Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom is one of my favorite books, um, as many of you know. Uh, and uh, early in the book, she, she's describing uh, her, her kind of childhood and her early life. She's a teenager. Corey is a teenager. And um, she, she lives with her mother and father and her sister Betsy and then her two aunts. And I guess the, the Dutch word for aunt is tante. So it's Tante Anna and Tante Jans are the two older aunts who live with them. Um, and Tante Jans, her, her husband has died in the last couple of years. Um, and so she's moved into the house uh, and, and she's a, she's a very kind of particular lady. She, she does a lot. She's known for um, her, she writes religious tracts like pamphlets uh, that she hands out. She's a member of a lot of clubs and uh, social organizations. She's very busy. She gives talks and lectures places. Um, but, and she's also a very particular, she's an aunt you wouldn't want to cross. You know, she's very uh, kind of strict. Uh, and this is how Corey describes her. Um, and, and while she's living with them, she gets diagnosed with diabetes, which in those days is basically a death sentence. They don't know when it's going to happen, but, um, but it was, you know, they, they didn't have treatment for it. 
And so uh, every week she had to do a blood test and Corey would help her draw her blood and then go down to the kitchen and they boil the water and Corey would have to do this blood test. And one day the blood test came back bad. You know, the sign was bad. They called the doctor. The doctor came, examined it and said, yeah, she's, she's going to die. Like she's dying. And so the family gathered together, kind of grouped together and, and tried to strategize how they're going to, what's the best way, what's the most gentle way to approach Tante Jans to tell her this, this news. Um, and, and this is where it picks up. Corey's writing. Uh, they walk into her room and, and it says this. My dear sister-in-law, Father, begin gently. There's a joyous journey that each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Jan, some must go to their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. All your clubs, Tante Anna ventured. Your writings, Mama added. The funds you've raised, said Betsy. Your talks, I began. But our well-meant words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumpled. Tante Jans put her hands over her face and began to cry. Empty, empty, she choked at last through her tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? Then as we listened in disbelief, she lowered her hands and with tears still coursing down her face, whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. I stood rooted on the spot, knowing that I had seen a mystery. To enter into the life of Jesus is to enter into his Sabbath, to rest from all our works. It's for the proud face to crumple, the hard heart to soften and break. It's for the frozen winter to turn to spring. It's a death followed by a resurrection. It's to believe what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. That he truly did all for us on the cross. He accomplished all righteousness for us. You don't have to do anything to earn God's favor, his love. What does this mean? A a million things. But Christian, here's one thing it means. In in one billion years, God will not not love you any more than he does right now. He loves you. He couldn't love you any more than he does right now. Why? Because his love for you isn't based on your performance. It's based on Christ and his performance, and it is finished. What if we could believe that? You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to hide. You never have to judge anyone, ever. It's all of grace. It's all of grace, and it's, all too wonder- it's almost too wonderful to imagine. How could this really be true? How could he love us this much? How could he accept even self-righteous Pharisees? And yet he does. Whoever you are in here, whether you're young or old, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, seeker, opposed, I don't, whoever you are, won't you for a second just forget about yourself and look at Jesus 
Won't you look to the Savior? There's no one like him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that pierces to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Would you cut us to the quick where we need it? Would you not let us live in judgment? Would you not let us live in in Phariseeism and fear? Would you not let us live in self-made prisons where there is no joy? But would you set us free? Would you break the chains? Lord, we want to love others. We want to be who you've called us to be, who you're making us in the world. And so please lead us in that. Father, do your work in our hearts. You know what we need. I praise you for accepting self-righteous Pharisees like me. Thank you for accepting prodigals and older brothers. Thank you for, for inviting us in when you could shame us. Thank you for your love.